Hi guys, and welcome to yet another episode of On Your Mark Podcast. And I'm your host, Mark Amaza. The On Your Mark Podcast is a twice a month podcast. And for half an hour, we'll do a deeper dive into the most important political and economic happenings in Nigeria. More than talking about what is happening, we are more interested in discussing why it is happening and the impact of its happening. This is also not going to be a one-way conversation. I'm looking forward to hearing from you through your comments and questions. You can email me at mark.amaza at gmail.com. You can also tweet or DM me via my Twitter handle at Amazonic or leave voice messages on this podcast page via the Anchor.fm app or website. So, let's get started for this week. So, for this week, let's start by um, taking the very first message I've received on this podcast. Uh, we have Toby Onyeme from Lagos who's setting these messages. Hi, Mark. Um, this, this, this was a very educative uh, podcast. I mean, it, it condenses everything that's, you know, the major highlights of this week you know so those who don't really have to those who don't have the opportunity to constantly look through news and recent happenings can use sundays like this to go through what's happened over the course of the week you know like me <laughs> we we share a similar struggle i guess of tending to speak too fast when recording you know but i took extra effort to play back you know some string of words that i couldn't hear clearly you know so you could you could so yeah um you could uh put in put in a little more effort to Making sure we are, we your listeners can hear you clearly. So yeah, thanks a lot for this podcast. Yeah, thank you very much, Toby, for that uh, message. Um, really appreciate your kind words. And you're you're right. I do have a tendency to speak too fast, especially when I'm excited. So keeping that in mind, I will try to be more um, to be clearer when I'm. Speaking so that you don't get to miss anything. Alright, thank you very much. So let's dive into what is on for this week. Um, we start with community police policing. A couple of weeks ago, the federal government approved um, 13 billion naira for the takeoff of community policing initiatives across the country. Now, under this community policing initiative, communities will be able to form security structures according to a standard national procedure. And prescription for all states to comply with. Um, presidential spokesperson Garba Shivu on a on a, um, sunrise daily with channels um, gave deeper insight into how this will work. These community security apparatuses will be run in accordance with a structure that will be defined by the Inspector General of Police. So, as such, the 13 billion naira is for training those who will be recruited into the community policing structures public enlightenment on a new system and to procure equipment even though he said that those who will be recruited into the community policing structures are not technically part of the police force they are going to be part for intelligence gathering for these communities 
they cannot bear arms so basically what they will do is to make sure to be the eyes and ears of the police in communities and then to feed information back to the police either about criminal activity or whatnot um, and then the police will take over from there but it doesn't just end here it also proposes that regional security outfits such as the southwest um, vigilante group um, called Amotekun will also be brought under the control of the inspector general of police now this last point sets a context for why this community community policing idea has been launched we are all know for a fact nigeria is quite overwhelmed by security challenges you have the book harm insurgency in the northeast we have banditry in the northwest you have herdsmen farmer clashes or herdsmen militia in the north central you have speech of kidnappings and robberies all over nigeria is a severely on the police country we have only about 300,000 police officers for 195 million people and about a third as act as security for vips including government private individuals and companies so we're looking at all the policemen you see guarding banks and companies um not just that urban areas are better policed than rural areas this well i may not have data to support the this last point can be pretty much assumed by the fact that rural areas have more crime than urban areas vast spaces between them creates that those open spaces for criminals to exploit for a very long time we have tried to um, plug in this poor policing problem by using the military and rather improving policing so you have a situation where today the military is being deployed in almost the two states of the country um solving um whether it's fighting insurgency or banditry or different task forces across different states militants in the Niger delta leaving us in a way vulnerable because the military's job is to protect us from external aggressors not to be used for internal security challenges but then this is what happens when policing is so poor but another problem with the nigerian police force is the fact that it's centrally controlled from abuja from recruitment to funding to operations so even though governors are called chief security officers of their states they are only that in name governors do not control a single security agency they cannot deploy a single policeman to the street a single soldier a single any security force because as per the constitution policing and security is in the exclusive legislative list which means it's exclusive to only the federal government reason why many times also the police cannot act promptly in situations or on cases until they get clearance from abuja um, and because of this frustration we have now seen states forming regional security outfits like such as amoteko which the southwestern states are leading we've also seen conversations that have begun be- between the southeastern states for establishing similar and we have seen the middle belt which is a pretty ambiguous term being encouraged to do same but here's a problem it raises constitutionally like i said earlier policing is an exclusively federal issue which means all these security outfits are vigilante vigilante groups and vigilantism is a clear indicator that the legal agencies for security are inadequate sadly vigilantism isn't new either we are very used to it in nigeria mostly at the grassroots level so think about your neighborhood vigilante group or your street vigilante group or vigilante groups being organized to protect markets or villages we've also had them at state levels remember the bakasi boys which 
in the early 2000s ended up becoming the Anambra, Imo, and Abia vigilante services. We have had we have vigilante services in Kogi, Kaduna, and Benue, and even the Hizba in Kanu, which is not recognized under the constitution. Even if their remit is only religious policing, they are still qualified as vigilante groups. Now, it's the fear of more vigilante groups coming out that is making the federal government rush out with community policing because they do not want this to become the norm. But then, what does this community policing initiative change? Sadly, not much. While it can potentially increase the size of the police force, even though, again, technically, those in the community um, policing structures are not part of the Nigerian police force, and yes, we do need more numbers for our policing. It doesn't change the structure of the force or its control, and that is fundamental to reforming it. Even worse, that the committee policing structures can only conduct intelligence gathering and pass out the intel to the police. This is a problem at hand. It's not that communities don't have intel a lot of times. It is that the inefficiency of the police has rubbish the trust communities have for the police. So rather than give intel, they often decide to take actions and end up committing more crime. There are numerous examples of where communities inform security agents that an attack is imminent or inform them that they know the persons behind certain attacks and actions are not taken in both cases. For reference, uh, there's a Human Rights Watch report from 2011 titled Leave It in God's Hands that um, looks at the aftermath of communal violence in Kaduna and Plateau states in 2010-2011 and how communities will always say we know this person and that person was behind the attack that killed our brother our sister our children our parents and no, most times a lot of times nothing happens when things happen or those people are arrested the cases do not go anywhere and that's also a consequence of the federal police and i'll explain why so imagine uh the community of violence in a part of Kaduna state and the poli- a police person the uh, a suspect is arrested and there's a policeman who is the in, um, investigating police officer who is supposed to be witness in court. And as the case is crawling through our very arcane judicial system, that police officer is posted uh, to say Ogun State. Now, he wouldn't be able to come from Ogun State to present to be witness in court because one, the police will not pay for that to happen. Even worse, the families do not have resources to do that, so that case dies. So it was an apt title for this very sobering report by Human Rights Watch called Leave It In God's Hands. It's something that you should look, it's very freely available online, but it tells a lot about what the problem is um, in this kind of situation. So So it's because of such situations that we begin to see more and more communities organize as um, to protect their villages or to exact their own idea of justice which is revenge um, a lot of times so end up committing more crime now because of this this committee policing initiative doesn't end the agitation for state policing and, and we can very we can see the evidence in the fact that the governors of Oyo and Ekiti State have clearly rejected suggestions that Amoteko will be under the control of the IG. For them, they still insist that Amoteko is going to be solely under their control as, um, as established by the laws they have passed in their respective states. Let, let me state my bias here. For the record, I'm, in a, I'm a strong supporter of state policing. A federal police structure is an aberration. 
in my view. Vesting control in the center, reducing the nimbleness of the police. We have police officers being posted to communities where they do, they do not understand the language, they, um, rather being communities they come from, not necessarily by birth or indigenship, but communities they are familiar with. We have also applied principles of military building to the police. For example, police barracks and aberration. Police, we have to uh, remember, they are still civilians. They ought to dwell amongst the people that they are protecting and not to be separate from them. But because we have a situation where, um, say, I'm from Bono State and being shown to be a policeman in Edo State and to um, provide excellent conditions of service, I'm not provided housing in a barracks. And then I'm, so is it kind of, separation between the community and the police which is supposed to protect them and that's an aberration we have situations where postings from one corner of the country to the other all the time right down to how they operate now community policing clearly will not end the perennial issues with our current policing structure neither will it end the agitation for state policing it is just window dressing and the need to amend the constitution to allow for state policing will have to happen eventually. There's need for that. There's need for us to rejig our security structure to be able to define the framework on which we shall have a decentralized police force rather than a federal one. How these police forces shall communicate or operate or coordinate their workings between themselves. How they shall coordinate with federal security agencies, whether it be the DSS, whether it's the National Security and Civil Defense Corps what crimes fall into the remit of each force, and so on and so forth. But until we get to that point, this policing structure, whether we tack on community policing to it, which feels like adding load to a structure with very poor foundation, will not provide the lasting solution. Now, it's good I ended that topic with um, talking about constitutional amendments. It's so timely because right now we have another round of constitutional amendments that's about to get underway um, in the nigerian national assembly um, the nigerian senate has finally announced the call for memoranda for constitutional amendments for its senate um, for its constitutional um, review committee to consider now since 2011 every senate has started, started its own constitutional amendment exercise and that has cost nigeria about a billion naira every year um, specifically between 2011 and 2015, we had about 7.75 billion naira that was spent by both chambers of the National Assembly. Sadly, the results we've gotten from that, precious little. Um, but, but, but let us keep money aside and let's ask this current amendment exercise, what do we expect to bring in terms of results? For me, let, oh, we can rephrase the question to look at it as, what are the pertinent questions it will bring up? Well, it might likely not be anything new. Since 2011, we have had the same issues come up again and again. We have restructuring, devolution of powers, state creation, indigenous versus residency, and so on and so forth. Um, in 2012, we had the House of Reps hold 360, 360 constituency hearings, basically each rep going back to their constituency to hold town hall meetings with their constituents uh, to talk about the issues that are before them for deliberation. We had six Senate zonal hearings and we then had an expensive extra constitutional national conference. I call it extra constitutional because in our constitution there's no framework, there's no clause for national conferences to um, decide 
or to propose a constitutional amendment or laws which because basically it just replicates um, what the national assembly is there for even worse is the fact that the people do not are not able to select themselves who goes to this national conference but again there's a huge agitation for a national conference almost as though nigeria's continued existence hinged on that but yeah despite all of this no constitutional amendment came out of it in 2017 all these issues were back on the front burner but only one constitutional amendment scale sailed through and that's the not too young to run act which lowered the um age of eligibility for running for elections and, and this is a movement i'm very active in i'm proud of my involvement so yeah yay but anyway did all these issues are, are back again um this time around so why do these issues keep coming back again and again well um that needs clearly uh, very clearly we are a very imperfect nation um almost by design and our constitution cannot be any way be described as a people's constitution considering the fact that it was drafted by the military um and did not have as much enough involvement of the people so yes there's a lot of need to keep working to get a constitution that meets the aspirations of the people in my opinion our constitution puts too much power at the center and too little with the states uh, for example, the exclusive legislative list, which defines the powers that only the federal government has, rightly contains such powers such as currency, defense, military, copyright, and so on and so forth. It's a long list. But it also contains powers such as prisons, policing, labor, including prescribing a new minimum wage or a national minimum wage, um, taxation such as value added tax, um, company income tax, and corporate capital gains tax, and mines and minerals, which are powers which I feel should be with the state or at the very least shared with them. So yes, for me, I do believe that the agitation for restructuring through the evolution of powers to the constituent units that states and local governments in order to achieve a more truly federal republic is badly needed now we've we've borrowed our our model from of, of federalism from countries like the united states um we could also look at other federal nations brazil india but but let's make a comparison with the united states this is what we've used to making uh, to compare with for for in the u.s the states came together to decide what powers to give the center in Nigeria, states haven't had the luxury to do the same. Instead, they have become beholden to the center in almost every way, much like infant babies and nursing mothers. So, and we see that um, clearly how um, barely, barely up to three states can survive without federal allocations, and which has also in turn made the states extremely lazy and unproductive because you know as a state, I don't need to do anything. All I need to do is wait for the end of the month, and voila catching my account gets you know um alert comes in you go to your federal allocation spend anyhow you want to and then wash rinse repeat but so if these if this is badly needed if restructuring is badly needed if we do need to devolve powers from the center to the constituent units if we badly need a truly federal republic why then do these constitutional amendments not produce the results as simply put as possible, it is a failure of strategy. Now, and I'll explain. The agitations for these needed reforms and amendments have consistently come 
from only one part of the country, the South, um, Southeast, the South South, and the Southwest, and at best parts of the North Central or part of the Amorphous Middle Belt. Now, even worse, those agitating for it, rather than make their arguments as economic ones, which these amendments are that can be win-win, they cast them in ethnic terms in a you-lose, we-win tone. And so yes, the North gets accused, and rightly so, of being resistant to the idea of restructuring or truly fiscal federalism or devolving powers. Um, some will throw in things like, oh, they are parasitic, or they depend only on all the income of the South, and so on and so forth. But it also depends on how you frame it. So if you frame, come to frame these arguments in ethnic in, in ethnical terms, and in that um, the North has to lose for us to win, well, expectedly they're not to be resistant to it, you know, and and that's why it keeps meeting opposition from the core north. Um, and whether it's President Buhari shooting down any suggestions of restructuring, or simply northern politicians and influence uh, of influence not adding their voice to this to the discourse. So we continue to just see how they will just um, to use it to slang on look. Uh, or you have an Ariwa Community Forum or Northern Elders Forum speak and oppose it, but. Again, I feel one of the reasons they keep doing that is because we have not sold the, the, the arguments to them enough, you know. Because for me, I keep seeing this as an economic argument which can lift or that can generate a tide that will lift all boats, not the one that one person has to lose for another to win. Beyond just that, there's also a failure of not defining exactly what they mean by restructuring or devolution of powers. What is it? Is it a return to the regionalism of the First Republic? Should states be merged to cut costs? Does it mean resource control? Or should resource control mean that states should have control of their natural resources while keeping quiet about taxation? Or does it mean that productive activity in states should have taxes accrued, those taxes from them accrued to those states? What exactly do we mean when we say restructuring or devolution of powers? All these I have listened ideas have been thrown out there. Now, if one side has different ideas without agreeing on one, it makes it easy for those who have found with status quo to simply say no. Or, in, or like President Buhari said in 2018, what exactly did they mean by restructuring? Restructure to what? In other words, if you do not define what restructuring means for you as someone who wants it, you are not allowing it to be defined for you by someone else. So without the pro-restructuring camp having specific things they want to achieve and finding ways to sell it to as many people as possible, nothing may change. This does not even have to come from politicians or sociocultural groups like the Afenifere or Hannes and Nigbo or the Southside People's Congress. It doesn't mean, it doesn't also mean that they have to fight for the entire thing at once. So what I mean by the, my last sentence is how do you also seize opportunities um, um, that and then push push through if just one amendment at a time and then push another amendment at, at another time? How about different organizations or campaigns at the same time on different issues? How about a campaign that's fighting for um, decentralized policing, one fighting for um, um, taking out certain ideas from the exclusive list to the legislative, legislative um, concurrent legislative list which states will have powers over whether it's um, prisons whether it's taxation how about let's say during recession you now begin to push uh, for states to have more powers to have VAT 
accrue to them and by then by the extension be able to expand the tax net there are many ways we could achieve that many many ways to skin a rat but it's definitely not social cultural organizations constantly shouting we need restructuring on the pages of newspapers without defining what exactly the restructuring will be or not having any strategy beyond that is beyond uh or not having strategy beyond that because that way is definitely not the way to go you know it, it, this feels like almost i'm giving a crash course in organizing but it's it's i keep seeing this um this lack of strategy again and again it's quite disenchanting for me because I've, I've believed in restructuring and fiscal federalism for a very long time. I've written about it for the past 10 years at least, copiously on my blog and other sites I've written for. And it's quite frustrating when we keep seeing, it, it, it's almost like as though it's just a way for this politicians to speak and not really do much about it. Like how do you then begin to push through? For example, during the recession, 2016 recession, when Nigeria was really dealing with really low revenue, states were looking for bailouts from the federal government. That was an excellent time to start pushing. How do we pushing the idea of giving states more power to be able to raise um, VAT, which is all which all accrued centrally? Because we all know how, for example, we have a very very low tax to revenue and tax to GDP ratio. We also have, and one reason is not because we are not taxed enough. It's because the tax net is too small. We need to expand the tax net, and we also have to know that for taxes like, or growth tax taxes like the uh, VAT and the and the CIT company income tax and so on, the FRS cannot be everywhere. The fact is that almost at least half of Nigeria's economy is informal. People who do, are not registered or incorporate their companies, so it's they, 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 what they make is not tax. But we have also not made a compelling argument for them to be part of the formal economy. These are things that states could really drive if they see that they'll have benefits for it. So that's why I keep saying these are not just mere, purely, merely political arguments, but they're also economic ones because they change the um, they can they can they can they, they provide opportunity for all parts of the country to prosper, not just not for one to lose, for the other to gain. But in a, in, looking at it this way, it, it's made me to not temper my optimism. And that's why, when, for me, I do not have high hopes that this constraint amendment exercise will achieve much. The catch is that, well, catch is that one does not need official period of constitutional review to push through an amendment. All you need to do is sponsor a bill in both houses or even one in the National Assembly that requires it. So, with sadness in my heart, as a pro-restructuring Nigerian, it does seem that we is still far. So let's go to the last uh, issue we're going to be discussing on this week's episode of On Your Mark podcast. On the first of this month, our electricity tariffs went up. President Buhari finally approved service reflected tariffs from these. Um, regulator of the power sector, that's the Nigerian, the National Electricity Regulatory Commission, which will increase tariffs um, and those tariffs will be reviewed quarterly, most likely upwards. So, um, expectedly, many Nigerians are not happy about this um, because it takes more money out of their pockets and it's totally understandable. And also on a macro scale, if you look at the fact that electricity costs are a major component of our inflation rate, which has gone up to 12.82% as of July this year 
you can know you can imagine that this is also going to further push things upwards but for me i am excited about the tariff increase uh, before you crucify me let me explain um i've been waiting for this for a very long time so it's simply this um our power sector has been going undergoing massive reforms since 20 since 2005 nepal became pcn with about 18 companies under it across generation distribution and transmission we had generation companies and distribution companies specially privatized with 80 percent and 60 percent respectively sold to investors we had the transmission company or the national grid concessioned um that's the manitoba hydro international then taken back by the government i'm just now this is a very simple description of the nigerian electricity supply industry because it's way more it's a way more complex sector than it is commonly taught um there are a lot of also other ancillary companies we're looking at maybe um the nigerian bulk electricity trader um, or other companies like um, other agencies like the nigerian electricity liabilities management company namco or whether it's the rea and so on and so forth but in simple form you're looking at generation transmission distribution but one key requirement to making this transition from a state monopoly a sector that is monopolized by a state company to a private sector market electricity market was that tariffs had to go up and the reason for this was that for decades the government has been subsidizing them and the results have been results have been obvious you have seen under investment across the whole value chain um, networks so for example demand not meeting supply those are already content on the grid which is about 45 percent of nigeria currently not getting enough supply networks are creaking um you know so so it's it's very obvious so if we needed to drive private sector investment in tariffs had to go up because the government cannot afford to continue subsidizing and nobody will put money in when if they do not know how to get it back up so NERC, as a regulator came up with a methodology called the multi-year tariff order or mito which provides for reviews of tariffs over 15 years, limited manual reviews every year based on certain parameters such as inflation, exchange rates, gas prices, and major reviews every five years with all inputs reviewed by stakeholders. Now, the idea behind this is for the tariffs that will grow up gradually to be as cost-reflective, to be cost-reflective, as opposed to it going up all at once. Because, I mean. In people need to be able to adjust and you know as service improving they're just making savings from either uh, making more money uh, from whatever from using power or spending less on um, generators they're able to also use that spendings to buy more power from the grid so what then went wrong simply put politics happened first there was a rather bad move to reduce tariffs in march 2015 on the eve of the 2015 elections just like two months after the tariffs had gone up um and in the words of a former new commissioner who accused the then chairman of single-handedly being behind it it's a patently bad decision since then it's been very difficult to raise the tariffs again there have been two major attempts to increase the tariffs in 2016 um NERC attempted to increase the tariffs and the senate shut it down and in april this year and it shut it down again albeit for a better for a more reasonable excuse of um the economic impact of the covid 19 pandemic and so it was pushed to july before being pushed to september where it's now finally happening 
but in this interim where tariffs have been held below the cost of product producing the power the government has had to support the sector with a lot of financing whether it's from the from mbet which is the bulk uh, buyer of power so mbet's role in the sector is that it buys power from generating companies to the grid and to distribute companies and collect payments and you know, all of that and they had it financed by a world bank loan of up to 700 million dollars or you also have the central bank which also be giving intervention funding without this funding from the cbn embeds and other sources the sector will have gone bankrupt and even as it is it teeters on the brink of insolvency we continue to see jenkos and discos complain about how they are not um, making money and all of that and it's, it's a hard it's a tough stories to sell because the average engineer goes i don't see power which power so how can you not be making money or decide to talk about other issues like how much you're charging me for for lights estimated billion and so on and so forth but even worse it has become made it difficult for new investments in the sector since tariffs are far from reflecting costs so why are the tariffs changing now why now and what does this change mean in order to access a 1.5 billion dollar loan for the federal government um, and another, another $750 million specifically for the power sector, the World Bank made the introduction of new power tariffs a prerequisite. And because we badly, badly need the money, we've had to fall in line. So it's one of the reasons why I say I, I, I like what's going on. So impact, well, yes, power costs are going up. Um, of course, not a popular thing. But the good thing is, to give investors the confidence to put money in, knowing they can make returns and not have to be continually scared that their investments will be a bad one. Of course, increasing tariffs alone isn't the solution to the power sector's problems. For example, we need to increase metering rates. Um, currently, only 40% of power consumers in Nigeria are metered. So, and that has contributed largely to distribution companies unable to collect um, the revenue for, which, um, for the power they sell. So it's and that creates a ripple effect across the entire value chain. Um, so good thing that the federal government has also waived import duties on meters for the next one year in, a, in order to increase metering. We could start begin begin to wonder why the thought of having a 35 import duty on meters was going to allow them achieve the goal of universal metering, but that's conversation for another day. But this move will, will end estimated billing for customers. So on the customer size side increases accountability you know how much you're consuming for power you're able to plan for it all of that but also reduce collection losses for these goals so they get to collect more revenue and the net effect is that you have an improved efficiency in the entire sector better power supply and all the benefits that come with it now no matter here's the thing the catch is this as much as this um types are going up it's still cheaper to for grid power is still cheaper than running your generator especially those who use smaller generators yeah, i better pass my neighbor are even really inefficient so you're spending more on them so this is why i do not see this as a bad thing you know but now why this won't be immediate the gates will be immediate the pains we'll experience now is only for the time being before things get better And so this is it for yet another episode 
of on your mac podcast it's been so much fun as always and looking forward to doing this again in two weeks time don't forget sending your comments and questions either via email mac.amaza at gmail.com that's mac.emaza at gmail.com tweet or dm at amazonic at emasonic or by sending a voice message via the anchor.fm app or website from the podcast page so always shout out to the talented producer sizzle pro for this awesome background music for the podcast so until then see you in two weeks time and be good